The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, Sarah Pidgeon of Wins in Kunawara, one half of Australia's most celebrated winemaking double act with Sue Hodder. Uh, we'll hear about their winemaking philosophy and that famous Terra Rossa soil. Plus, later on, Freddie Bulmer's back from the Wine Society for his monthly glimpse into life as a wine buyer. And as ever, your recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Sarah Pidgeon is one of Australia's most experienced and celebrated winemakers and also one half of one of the country's most enduring wine double acts. Together with her colleague of more than 20 years, Sue Hodder, she's been at Wins in Coonawarra for almost a quarter of a century. Jointly, they are ambassadors for Kunawara, a relatively remote region at the heart of the limestone coast that has for a long time punched well above its size, celebrated for its famous terra rossa soils. They are also, of course, an inspiration to other women winemakers as we prepare for International Women's Day next week. So, Sarah, uh, thanks so much uh, for joining us here on The Drinking Hour. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell us uh, how you got into wine then. Well, yes, it's uh, as with many people, uh, it, it was not part of a, a family business for me, uh, but certainly it was part of a, a culture at home. When I was a kid in the 1980s, uh, I, had, I had parents who, who loved their wine. Uh, and I think, you know, in the 1980s Australia, there were, that was probably a little bit unusual. There was a lot more beer drinking families than wine drinking ones. So it, it did mark us out as a, a little different uh, enjoying wine in the 1980s. And um, so really, I've, I have memories of, of them enjoying wine and some of the wines that uh, that they had on the table that I still remember fondly include things like Tyrrell's, which of course is a, a famous uh, winery in the Hunter Valley and Bailey's of Glen Rowan, there were a few of the, the marks that I do remember my parents particularly loving and they became legends uh, in, in our family and something that I had in mind. But, uh, but really studying winemaking was not something that my parents had expected me to do. I had a, a, a teacher and a scientist as parents and, and I had strong science. They expected something a little bit more technical or, or practical than than the choice of wine making that that I did make so that that was a little bit of a leap mind you the science is uh, hugely important uh, you, you went to Roseworthy did you I went to Roseworthy yes off I went so from New South Wales country New South Wales I, I headed to Roseworthy to to study this winemaking course it just sounded so romantic it's hard for me to imagine what I really thought winemaking was was going to be like when I did apply for it uh, but I think it was fairly quickly dispelled and uh, and what it was really about became clear to me over the course of studying for that first year that it was a lot more hands-on there was certainly a lot of science but there was a, a lot more tasting which I had expected but it was it was sort of it was harder or, or something to for me that was new to, to really taste in a technical way uh, was was something that uh, that I really had to work on and you know I guess my parents always had in the back of their mind that I might just get this out of my system and then go back and do a, a pure science degree or something like that. But uh, when you study something that takes you to beautiful places in the world to live amongst people who love flavours, love food and wine and, uh, and, and beautiful views and, and just having a good time, it's pretty hard to make a choice to turn away from that. So I never did. So talking of beautiful places, um... Uh, my uh, Australian wine geography is, is, is famously quite shaky. Uh, it's, it's the only kind of major wine producing country that I've uh, never visited for wine anyway. Um, so tell us, um, for those uh, who, who don't know, tell us about Kunawara, where it is and what it's like. Yes, so it, as you said, David, it's, it is a, a quite a remote wine region here in Australia. It's right in the very southern corner of South Australia. So central and south 
is uh, is where you need to have your mind's eye. If you know roughly where Adelaide is, we're around 400 kilometres south of Adelaide. Um, and then if you were to head over and continue driving for another 500 kilometres to the east, you would make your way to Melbourne. So we're kind of, we're in between Adelaide and Melbourne, quite equidistant, but quite remote from both those places as well. Uh, so a, a very southerly location, which of course gives us quite a cool climate on the most southern bit of the, the mainland here in South Australia. I mentioned those famous Terra Rossa soils. Tell us uh, about those soils. Yes, so it's, it's quite, it is unique, quite a rare type of soil. It's a red clay. I think a lot of people think of Australia and they think of the red dirt, that iconic uh, red that is often associated with landscapes here in Australia. But this is quite a rare red cracking clay that, that's quite unique and it doesn't occur in many places. Uh, and so this little scrap of uh, red terra rossa over a limestone base is it's quite a narrow little strip here in Coonawarra. It runs around 20 kilometres long and it's quite narrow, one kilometre wide um, and in some places uh, narrower than that. Uh, and that's the strip of Terrarossa soil that really has become so famous in the world and, and really gives a, a uniqueness to the red grapes that we grow here. And uh, tell us how that uh, Terrarossa uh, does that, how it influences uh, the, the wines in the way that it does. Yes, well, this this will get a little sound a little nerdy, but um, it's it's all to do, I believe, with the way it holds water. It's a beautiful type of clay that is quite free draining. When when the rains first hit, it's it's got properties where, uh, as I said, it's a cracking clay, so it it can allow the excess water to drain quite freely so so your vines don't get too bogged down uh, with heavy water and heavy soil straight away. So it's got a, a property of draining in the first instance. And then at the other end of the, of the rainy season, when soils start to dry out as, as uh, spring turns into summer, it dries out quite slowly. Um, and so I think it's this slow easing of the vineyards into a wet phase and then again into a dry phase that has something that particularly relates to high quality grapes, in particular Shiraz and Cabernet seem to have an affinity with this. And of course, Cabernet Sauvignon is the thing that we've become most famous for. So those qualities of the way that the soil allows the, the vineyards to grow, coupled with our unique climates and, and our warmer days and cool nights that we experience here, I think, hold a key to our flavours. You mentioned Cabernet there, and uh, it's fair to say, although I know Shiraz uh, certainly historically has a, a really important role, Cabernet is king, right? Cabernet is absolutely what we've become known for. Uh, and you're quite right. Historically, with the first plantings back in the 1880s, uh, both those varieties were held in the same regard for a long time. And really it was in the 90s where it started to split and the, and the reputation for Cabernet started to grow. Uh, it's not to say that the Shiraz is not good quality. I just think that there are more places in the world and especially in Australia that can make beautiful Shiraz styles. It's such a chameleon of a grape that can grow beautifully in different styles around Australia. But Cabernet is harder. There's there's only a few unique places that can, can really uh, make truly uh, world-class Cabernet from Australia here. And Coonawarra is, is definitely one of those. You mentioned a bit about the climate uh, earlier on when you were describing uh, Coonawarra. Uh, so for Cabernet, uh, you mentioned that it's it's cooler than many other places, uh, uh, many other Australian wine regions. Uh, obviously, uh, you need uh, plenty of sun and warmth for Cabernet to ripen, don't you? So uh, just talk about how the, the climate there uh, suits Cabernet. Yes, so the unique thing about the the temperatures and the weather here is uh, is to do with what happens off the coast near us. So Coonawarra is a little bit inland. It's about 80 kilometres to the nearest coastline. But uh, but the, the coast near us during summer has extremely cold waters. Um, and if you were to look at a temperature graph you, uh, that, that had the uh, te a temperature map of the ocean 
around where we are, around Robe and Beachport, where Coonawarra is, uh, the temperature of that water is a good five degrees cooler at this time of year than the, temp the temperatures around Adelaide, just 400 kilometres to the north. So if you wanted to go to our beautiful beaches and have a swim, the Adelaide beaches are much more comfortable <laughs> to swim in at this time of year. Uh, it's cool, cool water off the coast here. And that relates to then cold breezes that come through. So even when we've got gorgeous summer days, uh, clear, bright days and, and a nice amount of, amount of warmth for our growing season, it always cools down at night and you need a jumper at this time of year uh, in the peak of our growing season, right when we're getting ready for our, for our grapes to develop all their flavours. And again, I think that's something unique. It uh, doesn't happen in many places, that that difference between the, the warm days and, and the cool nights right at this time of year in this summertime heading into autumn that we're experiencing now. I think it gives us a certain brightness and freshness to the fruit when it does come time to harvest. I was going to say that diurnal range is going to be absolutely fantastic for acidity, isn't it? Yes, yes, it, it is. I think it relates to acidity and overall balance and brightness in our wines. And that must help a lot uh, when the climate crisis uh, is something that is uh, on all our minds at the moment. Yes, uh, and we're certainly in no ways climate deniers here, but we do feel very blessed to have a, a certain buffer against the effects of what is happening around us. And uh, it's definitely true that the last two decades have been slowly warming here. We have a lot of temperature data to show that, but we feel like we're able to continue to grow high quality Cabernet Sauvignon here because of this unique uh, opportunity we've got with the, with the cool nights in particular. And of course, um, I, I'm sure this is a bit hackneyed, uh, me saying this, but there are parallels from what you describe uh, with that uh, maritime influence um, with Bordeaux, aren't there? Yes, that is um, uh, often a, a comparison that we can make when we're, we're trying to describe our climate. And of course, Bordeaux has a lot of Cabernet planted there, so that it makes sense that yeah. they um, have, have a similarity in that way. I'm always a bit wary of uh, drawing these uh, parallels with the, the great uh, French regions because there, there is obviously um, so much uh, beyond those um, great uh, French uh, regions. But let, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, wins uh, because the foundations were laid down by uh, John Riddick, an entrepreneur um, who uh, recognised uh, what you've uh, been describing for us, the Terra Rossa soils and uh, built this uh, winery. Um, his image, I think, still adorns um, the, the bottles uh, from the image of the winery. And I think your top name is, uh, top wine is named in his honour. That's right, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So John, John Riddick was uh, a Scottish settler. He made his fortune on the goldfields initially, not, not gold panning, but, but trading with, with the people who, who were panning for gold over in Victoria. Uh, and he would travel between South Australia and, and Victoria trading and, uh, in goods that uh, the gold miners did need. Uh, and then he used that money to purchase a, a large tract of land here in South Australia that uh, encompassed what was to become Coonawarra. And so when he had, had this parcel of land, he was one of the first to recognise this little rise in, in the landscape, which um, it was, was sticking out of the of the wetter soils either side. Of course, that became where the original highway came because because it was higher and, and a, a more stable place to put a road. So some of the best Terrarossa soil is in fact right under our major highway, often <laughs> the um, ironic way in, in early development. But but he, he saw that this was a, a different soil and unique and he worked very closely with his head gardener William Wilson to to figure out what kind of crops could be put on this fruit colony that that he had a vision for so they planted uh, stone fruits and a lot of other crops as well and did lots of test planting as well as the the original grape varieties that they planted there in the 1880s he had a lot of a lot of things going on a lot of ideas he um, he did all that test planting he proposed the the uh, the fruit colony and the and the smaller parcels of land to be sold off to settlers built the winery built a built a railway he did a lot in a in a short few decades there 
So that's John Riddick. Uh, where do the winds come in then? You have to fast forward a good 50 years um, to when the, the Wynn family then purchased the winery. And so if you think about it, there's a bit of a gap there in the history with some massive world events that occurred, two world wars, um, a Great Depression. There was a lot of things impeding the progress of a, of a new region like Coonawarra um, in those 50 years in between John Riddick's era and when the Wynn family came on board. And really, 1950s in Australia was a renaissance in a lot of wine regions, including Coonawarra. This was when people were just recovering enough from the, the war and, uh, to be able to consider uh, getting back onto the ideas of businesses like wine. And, uh, and they, the Wynn family were the family that had this vision to take this beautiful old winery and, uh, and make the wines as we know them now, labelled as Wynns and sold around the world in some cases not that differently in their, in their style than they were set out in the 1950s. There's a lot of history there, as you mentioned. Um, when we talk about New World, as a, uh, and I know we only use it really as a shorthand anyway, but um, does that kind of get your goat a bit in Australia? I wouldn't say so. I, uh, you're, you're right that there, there's a lot of history here. Our, our history is just very different. It's um, a, and sometimes we um, we need to to look further at the natural history, the the ancient soils that are a part of a, a profound part of a country like Australia, is something that I think that we're still learning to be proud of here. So that's perhaps a, a different way of, of answering that question. But I, I think our history is is just as interesting, but it's it's not as layered or, or, or cluttered perhaps as, as the European wine histories. That It's got a, it's definitely a different vibe and perhaps one that in some cases has a chance to be a little closer to nature. Well, wine's gain was diplomacy's loss, actually. Uh, you should have been a diplomat. <laughs> uh, uh, you have um, this... Uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, this enduring partnership with uh, Sue Hodder. Uh, do you share, and we'll talk about that partnership in a, in a moment, but do you share her passion for old vines? Oh, it's one of the joys of working at, at Wins is is uh, the history, that the fact that uh, Wins is the oldest winery here in Coonawarra and has some of the oldest vineyard holdings in this beautiful region. Um, it's, it's what keeps us here. It's why we've both worked at Winds for as long as we have the fascinating uh, vineyards that that we get the pleasure of working with year in and year out and uh, and seeing the differences of each season on all that little patchwork of vineyards that, that we uh, get to bring into the winery each year. is uh, It's fascinating and a, a real joy and a real privilege. And you both spend a lot of time uh, amidst the vines, don't you? We do, yes. Starting about now, we um, we spend a lot of time up and down the Terrassa Strip in, in our favourite little patches, hunting out uh, and getting a feel for where the season is going to kick off. And um, of course, after the amount of time that Sue and I have worked together, we know that there are a few spots that that we have to go to first to check because they're likely to be the the starting points for ripening and, and for our vintage. But there's always a few um, vineyards that behave differently, ripen earlier or ripen slower than than you expect. So you've got to stay on your toes at the same time and uh, and listen to what the vineyards are telling you. And some of these deeply old vineyards that we have, they take a bit of coaxing out to get the best out of them. So it's it's it can take a, a number of seasons for us to, to learn the vineyards and, and what the best thing in the winery is for them and what's best for them in different type in cooler seasons or in warmer seasons. So it, yeah, it's it's complex, um, but walking in that terrorosa soil and getting a feel for how they're going and the crop levels and the evenness of the bunches and things like that is, uh, is absolutely, this is the best time of year. We, we love doing that. And you have this amazing double act that is, uh, yeah, almost a quarter of a century strong. You obviously get on really well. Um, what explains that kind of the longevity of this uh, uh, this partnership? Well, I think it's um, it it is unique, and uh, I think um, it it surprises us that th this time has crept up with us working together so long. But we just, I think we. Uh, we do agree on a lot of things and um, while we didn't arrive at the same time in Coonawarra, I think we both had 
the same experience when we first got here of being really captivated by not only the the beautiful fruit but by the community and the people here they are very genuine very welcoming and if if you love what they're doing with the wines um, they they absolutely open their arms to you. So so you know a, a terroir it often is said it has a lot to do with people, and I think Sue and I agree that the community here is a very strong thing and a, and a strong part of what makes the Kunawara wines here. So we shared that initial experience, which which grabbed us and made us love this region. Uh, it's big open sky country, just absolutely glorious uh, because of our quite relatively flat landscape where we are with uh, the Terrorossa Strip uh, at the centre of it. it it's, a, it's a really stunning landscape here, beautiful sunsets, sunrises, uh, blue skies and clouds framed by wonderful vineyards that we get to drive around. Uh, that that really makes your heart sing when you're a part of a region like this. So I think uh, we share that love. We share very honest conversations about what we love about wines and wine tasting. Um, we don't pull punches in criticising our wines to each other. We try to not tell lies when we're tasting together. And um, I think that that quality, that trust that you have to have uh, in each other to to be very hard on your wines has been a part of what has led wins to keep improving through the time that we've been there. I mentioned International Women's Day uh, coming up the week after next. You must uh, be an inspiration, the pair of you, to other uh, aspiring female winemakers. Um, well, thank you. And um, we try to be uh, to live up to that reputation. Uh, but I have to say that um, here in Coonawarra, we're not the only female winemaking duo anymore. There's a number uh, around Coonawarra and I, I find this as a, as a place to work uh, is one that really punches above its weight in terms of its uh, women winemakers in this region, uh, which is really pleasing to be able to say that uh, it's no longer just Sue and I working as a, as a team of women on wine in this great region. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, Australia, <laughs> rightly or wrongly, sometimes has a reputation for that kind of uh, slightly machismo um, culture. Um, as I say, that might not be fair, uh, you'll, you'll tell me, but um, have you, the pair of you, ever encountered um, kind of um, sexist attitudes in in the wine business in the sort of in the many years that you've been in it. Look, I'd say um, we probably absolutely have, but I think another thing that Sue and I share is uh, an attitude of really not uh, not caring about that and just getting on with it, which uh, it it has worked for us. Uh, it, it's been our approach is to just be confident and um, and get on with the job and just speak with uh, the people, men and women whom we respect and who we feel supported by and uh, and carry on in that way, which is not to say that that is an easy thing for all people to achieve. It's, it's something that Sue and I have managed and I feel very grateful that, uh, that that's how it's panned out for myself. Uh, and, and for Sue, uh, but that's not to belittle other people's experiences. Well, that's uh, another, you know, diplomatic answer. Um, as I say, you're, you're good at those. Um, uh, here's, here's another one for you, because Wins is part of uh, Treasury Wine Estates. So a global business, one of the biggest, uh, with some really big brands, um, Penfolds, Lindemans, Wolf Blass, alongside Wins. Um, is uh, you mentioned, you know, when you went to Roseworthy, um, the some of the kind of romantic stuff um, kind of being uh, uh, lifted away uh, as you got to grips with uh, winemaking. Um, when you're part of a big corporate global beast, um, does it get a bit sort of commercial? Does it get a bit, does it move away from that kind of romance a little bit too far sometimes, do you think? Again, I feel very fortunate to have, have not felt that way. I think being part of the company that, that Wins has, I've been very grateful for it. It gives us a chance to, in some ways, feel supported to be a little bit more daring 
uh, in our experiments, knowing that uh, that we can uh, that we've got that support behind us. It's it's not do or die on every parcel. We've, uh, we've, we're encouraged to experiment and to make mistakes from time to time. Hopefully, not too many, but uh, but I certainly think that that's a, a huge advantage of uh, of the company that uh, that owns wins um and and that's a, a a thing that i've appreciated over the time uh, through several ownerships uh, i've still felt that as a thread of support for wins and for what we want to achieve there another side to that is um uh the romance and and every all the small parcels they're they're still there at wins uh we, we've got so many little vineyard parcels and, and things that we get to play with but the actual logistics of running a proper winery that's selling a decent amount of wine in the world is actually something that I really enjoy it's very very satisfying to run a proper business here and boy what a business it is I mean Australian wines generally wildly popular in the UK yours uh, significantly so um, why do you think the UK kind of appreciates Australian wine as much as it does? Well, I think, you know, there's there's decades of, of history with us uh, having close ties with, with people in the UK in a tasting sense. And I think it does go back to that the Australian wines through the decades uh, have been very open in the way that we uh, Australians have been open in the way that they communicate about their wines uh, uh, they try to simplify and demystify wines which I think perhaps uh, before Australian wines really came onto the scene uh, w- was not a part of the culture so I think perhaps that was a breath of fresh air uh, in the first wave of Australian wines being exported that uh, hopefully uh, is still appreciated and, and continued in a in a different way uh, in the current era. And talking of uh, the current era, and you mentioned uh, some of the uh, you know in, the impressive history that Wins has, but looking to the future, uh, what what's next? What are you uh, planning? It's been a few decades of, of various landmarks. I can I can map different uh, vintages that sort of signalled a shifting of of pace and a shifting of of gears for uh, wins and for my time there and Sue's time there. Uh, so just to take that there is more in the future, but to just reflect that uh, I think in 2005, I really felt a shift in the wines and an improvement in the wines, which was born from the first uh, rejuvenation in the vineyards that was going on uh, in the in the five years prior to that. Uh, in 2010, we saw a shift again uh, which was really to do with uh, the opportunities we had to really refine our barrel selections and some improvements in the winery that we were able to make. 2015 was another landmark year because it was the first time that we had vision berry sorting, which is, is very common in, uh, in other parts of the world, but quite rare still here in Australia. Uh, and it made some immediate improvements and an, another shift in what was possible for us at Wins, and um, and we started seeing some baby new plantings of new clones in 2015 come through. They were still very young at that stage, and just this last season, 2021, uh, saw some of the new plantings that had been going on for over a decade start to really mature and look like the very exciting new things that are going to be the future of Wins. So. I've witnessed a real changing of the landscape in the vineyards in my time with with the differences in first renovating old vineyards, which are still beautiful and very important to us, but then through a couple of eras of planting both newly imported clones of Cabernet to this region, which is important for this changing climate, um, and then heritage selections from our own old vineyards, which are on our own roots, that are going to be some of the profound new plantings for the next generation of winemaking. So the vineyards that we are now working on uh, and then continuing to plant at this point with new combinations of root stocks, all of this work is what's going to keep Coonawarra as a profound Cabernet region for another, I hope, three decades at least. 
So that's what's next is, is all that work just coming to fruition. And it's exciting times to see both the lovely old vineyards that we talked about, which we love, and then this next generation coming through, uh, really keeping us on the world stage for Cabernet. And you, you mentioned their uh, vines on their own roots. So this is, they're not grafted. You don't have a phylloxera issue with those particular uh, vines or a, a risk of that. That's right. And it's there's not many places in the world that can still have vines on their own roots. They're, and they're, I do believe there's something else and there's something powerful in that for us. And, and it does make a difference to our wines. It's at some point that we may lose that opportunity but for now we've got it and it's it's a powerful thing that we uh, we think is important to our history and of course the um, the new rootstocks that we are planting in the region will help it to combat any phylloxera if it does arrive in this region which we don't want to happen but it's very important for us to understand new generations of rootstocks and how we can grow Cabernet on those better uh, how they can help us mitigate changes in climate, uh, how, how we can use less water. All of these factors are, are fascinating. And you mentioned something else there, vision sorting. Uh, this is technology that, that allows you to um, eke out, uh, pull out dodgy grapes, basically, as they're going through into the winemaking process, right? Yes, well put, dodgy grapes, yes. Out, out with those ones. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so we can, get, we can get the most even sample of of grapes uh, by using this sorting and and it's quite uh, fascinating to to see the difference of uh, of using this equipment and not it's just got this beautiful pristine uh, red ferment cap on the on the sorted grapes which uh, which we love to see it just means that we've got the pure expression of cabernet fruit coming through when we get to use that technology well that pure expression uh, i was uh, as a bit of homework i was uh, uh, tasting your uh, black label Cab Sauve, which actually uh, is a premium wine, but it's uh, it, it's uh, for for what it what's in the bottle. It's it's very well priced in this country. Actually, um, it's uh, competitive for something of, of that quality. Um, you have this extraordinary for Cabernet Sauvignon uh, that's quite young. You have this incredible um, juicy, fruited, um, and very open accessibility in the wines. Um, that's something you're. Um, aiming for um, very deliberately is it that accessibility well what we want is um, perfectly ripe tannins so that they're they're not abrupt um, so we want them even as we can get in the in the vineyards and as ripe as we can get in the vineyards and then we can further use our vision sorting to to refine that and then we don't want to rough that up too much with the wrong type of oak so so very very fine oak selections to to really uh, to keep that a very supple palette now that's not to say that there's no tannin there it is there it's just it is very ripe and and very polished um what's there in the background of that black label that you're describing so it's it's a, it's a it does have a, a smoothness in its impression as a young wine but make no mistake that that still has the ability to to age very well it's just that it's balanced at the start of its life and we do believe that if you have balance at the start you'll have better balance as that wine ages mm, well the tannins are you know paper fine they're like that sort of venetian kind of uh, delicate paper that is do you have a kind of tannin management strategy or is that just the influence of that that very fine grained um you know uh, light touch oak that you mentioned it's certainly to do with the light touch oak and it's but it's more profoundly to do with the work that's been done in the vineyards over 20 years now just improving the way that we grow the gate the grapes opening up the canopies evening it out uh, just a, a huge amount of work to to get the vineyards into a better shape than I've ever seen them in this current era. That just gives us that opportunity for evenness and and good ripeness towards the end of our season with our cabernet. Yeah, well, it's a, a they are uh, yeah, really delicious wines. So uh, it's a great pleasure to uh, to talk to you, uh, Sarah, and to. Uh, hear the benefit of your uh, experience and Sue's as well, of course. Um, and uh, you paint a, a really very inviting picture of uh, of your 
uh, your home and those terra rossa soils so i can't wait to uh, to see uh, those soils one day but um uh, thank you very much indeed uh, for sparing the time i know you're very busy um to uh, talk to us here on the drinking hour it's my pleasure love talking about kunawara and cabernet and wins any day david thank you very much thank you the drinking hour on food fm you're listening to the drinking hour with david kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. It's time for our first selection of IWSC medal winners from the 2021 judging process, and where better to start than wins, of course, as we've been talking to Sarah this week. And first, uh, the wine that I was mentioning just now, actually, uh, it's a silver medal winner with a high score, 93 points, awarded by a panel that included two masters of wine. Wins Kunawara Estate Black Label Cabernet Sauvignon 2018. This iconic wine, first produced in 1954, using the top 20% of Cabernet fruit that comes into the Wins winery, going through that uh, optical selection process that uh, Sarah was talking about, uh, with an elegant floral nose, uh, some graphite and brooding black fruit wrapped up in paper-fine tannins. It's a real personal favourite of mine, and it's actually easily available as well at Majestic Wine uh, for 25 quid on a mix six, which I think is uh, less than it would set you back in Australia. Uh, next, uh, let's head across the uh, Tasman Sea to New Zealand. And we've talked a lot about Cabernet, so let's have a Merlot to uh, balance things out a little. Uh, Oyster Bay Merlot 2020 was a bronze medal winner from Hawke's Bay on the east coast of the North Island, the region that provides a huge amount of what uh, Kiwis eat. Uh, awarding their medal, the judges said, concentrated and brooding with intense dark fruit and roasted red pepper notes overlaying sweet oak. And back to Europe, finally, for this time. Italy, in fact, for a gold medal winner. Sella and Mosca, uh, Montioro, 2019, Vermentino di Galura from Sardinia. Uh, this is from a company that owns 650 hectares and uh, started in 1899 by two Piedmontese gentlemen. Uh, it now has uh, one of the biggest land ownerships in Europe. And this particular uh, variety is uh, grown on the northwestern part of Sardinia on granite soils. Awarding their gold medal and 96 points, the judges said, ripe pear and yellow apple with a touch of oxidative richness on the nose, combining with smoky and flinty notes, delicate citrus fruit and strong minerality, harmonious palate with savoury richness, generous and warm with balanced acidity and excellent concentration. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. It's time to catch up with uh, Freddie Bulmer at the Wine Society for our monthly delve into the life of uh, a wine buyer. And I know you've been uh, back on the road at, at last, but we're going to come to that uh, in a second. Yes. Yeah, you okay. For a while. Hello, Freddie, by the way. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks for having me back on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so, so somewhere you haven't been for a while. Um, yeah. Australia, of course, um, and uh, we were talking there to uh, Sarah Pigeon about uh, about Kunawara and uh, very remote region, the Terra Rossa soils. Um, mm. Is there a region you're kind of familiar with? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing that's interesting about Kunawara or, or, or what I kind of associate with Kunawara, I guess, is a really classically Australian style uh particularly with with the reds you know the, the most famous really for, for cabernet but uh, it's got that lovely kind of that lovely sort of specific personality that the the terra rossa soil gives the wines and i just think it's brilliantly cl sort of classic and old school i, I, I think the wines are great and uh, is it uh, somewhere you're buying from at the moment as well yeah, so it's it's been um, there's been a gap in our range for a little while uh, for a wine from Kunawara, but there is something on the way. So we've recently started working with well, one of the one of probably the most well-known producers in the region, um, Parker Kunawara Estate, uh, whose wines are fantastic, um, and we're reintroducing them into the range. So we will shortly have 
uh, a Kunawara wine back in uh, on the website, but uh, <laughs> as is the case for a lot of our Australian wine, it's it's on the water at the moment. It's on the way. So hopefully in the next in the next couple of months, provided things run smoothly, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> and that does seem to be a recurrent theme with your yes. uh, longer distance wines on the water at the moment. And this is uh, a reference to the <laughs> yeah. shipping crisis yeah, and the fact yeah, exactly. everything's still uh, taking um, rather a long time at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, it's difficult. I think hopefully things are looking like they might start going in the right direction. But certainly for the uh, much longer haul stuff, um, it's it's difficult. But it's you know everyone in the in, in the UK who's bringing wine in from Australia or New Zealand, for example, is in the same well in the same boat. I suppose it's probably not the best. Oh, <laughs> best very good. To use, <laughs> but uh, um, but yeah, so it's um, it's certainly not unique to us. But it's it's a challenge nonetheless. Yeah, I was at uh, Wine Paris uh, last week um, and there was a really interesting uh, session on uh, logistics. And if you'd asked me a few years ago whether I'd have found <laughs> a session about logistics fascinating, um, the answer would almost certainly have been absolutely not over my no, big point because I didn't find it very <laughs> yeah. interesting. But uh, I think we've all had to learn to love logistics, um, uh, e even journalists like me, um, and, and certainly in, in your yeah. business. And uh, oh, yeah. uh, actually, Australia, is, is uh, one, and New Zealand as well, of course, um, two of the countries uh, I learned in this session that have been really absolutely the worst hit by this uh, uh, container crisis. Yeah, it's it's a real it's a real shame. You know, we're just starting to sort of see some momentum uh, and some traction with, you know, with sales from those countries. And certainly, uh, you know, when the pandemic first hit, people seem to go nuts on on New Zealand Sauvignon, uh, which was great because, of course, that had a fantastic impact on sales. But then the challenge, of course, was trying to get more, um, which which wasn't easy and hasn't been particularly easy since. Um, so uh, my poor colleague, Sarah, who does our shipping, has really had, had her work cut out uh, over the last kind of, well, a couple of years almost now so yeah. um, so it's certainly not been easy but you know hopefully well things can only get better surely so he yeah. says that's <laughs> certainly <laughs> certainly what sarah must be thinking anyway let's talk <laughs> about uh, your somewhere you have been recently yes. um and really um talking to you as regularly as i do um i it feels like the first trip uh, significant one um, that you've done in ages. You've mm. um, you are of course the, the buyer as well as Australia and New Zealand. You're Eastern Europe and Austria, and I know Austria is uh, something you uh, you love to have in your portfolio. Uh, you're really passionate about uh, yeah. Austrian wines. So where have you been? So I've been to Austria. <laughs> no, I I, uh, I specifically went to to um, Kremstal and Kamptal just very briefly. So it was the first trip I've been on since the well since before the pandemic actually. And in March 2020, I just got back from Greece before then uh, lockdown happened about 10 days later. So um, first plane I've been on in a long time. So it was quite uh, quite exciting. It was quite unique or or quite novel, I should say. I suppose to um, to to be excited about going on a plane again because the, mm. as you can imagine when you're traveling quite a bit the novelty soon wears off uh, so that was exciting but yeah so I, I just went out for a short trip um really what i wanted to get my head around a little bit was the um the kind of getting in and out of the in and out of the country uh sort of thing because it's it's as clear as mud when you read about these things online uh and you know you have to take a test at this point and then you know fill in this form and that form and so on but actually funnily enough it was easier to get into austria than it was to get into the uk um, yeah so you just show strange you, isn't it yes. so, yeah i know <laughs> no. but uh hey ho but no it was it was really good so i just caught up with a small handful of, of producers um and was lucky enough actually for the first time to take a trip across austria um a blessing and a curse in some way that in some ways that it, it the flights were a little bit hit and miss so it turned out to be easier to fly into vienna and out of innsbruck than it was to just go in and out of vienna on this occasion so it meant a, a beautiful drive across the country um, and a perfect opportunity to kind of fall in love with Austria again. It was great. And just for the benefit of those who don't know Austria so well, mm. um, tell us a little bit about um, Kamptal and Kremstal and uh, why uh, you're so interested in wines from those regions. Yeah, so there are two regions which are basically if you if you start off in Vienna over in the over in the east of the country and you jump in the car and you essentially or jump in a boat, follow the Danube uh, west uh, in the car about sort of 45 minutes to an hour or so, um, you'll come to the, the town of Krems um, and you'll have pretty much just been through um, Kamtal. So they're, they're neighboring uh, little regions. 
focusing mostly on, on Gruner and Riesling. Um, and it's the perfect climate for these two grape varieties because it's pretty cool, uh, cool climate area. Um, so the acidity in these wines is what makes them really, really unique. They're so sort of pristine and, and set up for such a long, you know, potentially incredibly long time of, uh, of aging. You know, you can put these wines away for, for years and years and years and they'll mature so, so well. So it's a real kind of hidden gem. Um, you know, these are two regions that aren't on a lot of people's radars, uh, perhaps. Um, and I think probably a lot of that is to do with the fact that many of the best wines really are, are drunk either in Austria or, you know, they export a lot to Germany as well. Um, so we don't see an awful lot of them in the UK, but I just think they're really exciting. The quality is fantastic. And because they're perhaps slightly lesser known in the UK, the value is is phenomenal as well. So, so yeah, really, really exciting places and just sort of bursting with stories. Yeah, I love the wines. And they, would it be mm. fair to say that they are still slightly in the shadow of their uh, more famous neighbour, Vakau? Uh, yeah, probably, probably. So I think, I mean, Vakau has always been uh, a region which has been sort of famously Austria's kind of, you know, most premium uh, fine wine area. Um, and, you know, it's had a long, rich history, uh, you know, of that. And I think historically people certainly in that part of the world would equate kind of, um, you know, weight and concentration of a wine to quality. And so the Vacau is making these really big, uh, sometimes almost sort of viscous, you know, oily, uh, fairly dense white wines, which which were very impressive. But meanwhile, the wines from the, the Kremstal and Kamptaler have always been a little bit more sort of fine and crisp. Uh, and I think as people as as certainly in the uk you know as, as the the consumer's palate has changed to prefer a bit more in the way of elegance a slightly kind of less is more sort of thing um i think people have been drawn a little bit more towards um uh Kremstal and Kamptal. but but yeah certainly they've been in the in the shadow of the vacal for but for a long long time yeah absolutely but they're really coming through and i think um in particular uh, wines like uh, or vineyards like heiligenstein and, and lamb uh in uh, in Kamptal uh, are I mean, every bit as good as the uh, as the very best wines from the Vacau for sure. Stunning, stunning wines. Um, yeah. And you uh, you have, for example, uh, yes, Schloss Gobelsberg, one of the, it's a uh, the most isn't it? famous. It is rather, yes. So are the wines. They're lovely. <laughs> yes, quite very difficult good. for us to say. Very good. Um, and uh, I know uh, you uh, you have uh, a great relationship with uh, Michael Musbrugger, uh, the yes. chief uh, winemaker there. But oh, he's fantastic. Um, isn't he great? Absolutely amazing man. So modest, yeah. so 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 brilliant. And Absolutely. you're uh, always talking about you know uh, the importance of relationships in your mm. business mm. as a as a buyer. And it sounds like um, Austria is the place where you've maybe made um, the most sort of meaningful uh, relationships in in terms of uh, your 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 role. Yeah, I think. Um... Uh, that's one thing. I mean, first of all, it's one thing that's. I mean, it's it's a, it's a real um, bonus of of working for the wine society, you know, because the business itself is very much all about you know good supplier relationships and so on. Um, but it's uh, yeah, we've all got great relationships with all of our. Uh, sort of all the countries and the regions and so on that we work with, there's, there's some fantastic relationships with producers there. But Austria just seems to lend itself so well because I think, why is that? I think that is because Austria is mostly made up of small family wineries. You know, it's not a massive sort of uh, commercial uh, juggernaut type thing. You know, there's lots of small boutique, you know, X generation family wineries. Um, and, and they really, really not only care about what they do but it's kind of in their heart you know they they it's their passion it's their their kind of their their love really you know um and and so i think what i've noticed is that going there and 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 taking a genuine interest in in these wines means so so much to these people um which is really quite a lovely thing from my point of view to to experience to kind of see the see that passion and that care and 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 so on um so you just kind of get welcomed in with open arms really which is nice there's there's much less of a kind of um, sort of official uh, sort of uh, business first approach. It's kind of, we'll come in and let's drink some wine together and let's talk and uh, and, and kind of uh, share our love for what we do. So, so yeah, as, as a country, it's just an absolute joy to work with um, because there's some just very, very special people. 
um no it's it's great it's great i want to go back there now i'm just come back here <laughs> yeah yes well you're persuading yourself back um I am. And, and just, just finally um if someone is not familiar with those wines yeah um where would you uh, from your own range where would you send them what would you urge them to try if they if they don't feel uh, they know those those wines really good question well i think one of the the greatest strings in austria's bow is actually it's inexpensive Gruner so you know 8.95 nine pounds thereabouts um Gruner Veltliner is just such a lovely lovely white wine to 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 try and I think it's on one hand got its own sort of unique personality it's not quite like anything else in the world but it's also incredibly sort of friendly as a style of wine it's really crisp it's really refreshing it's got lovely kind of uh, peachy fruit to it a bit of citrus and so on um so I would I would suggest um looking at uh, Gruner, inexpensive Gruner, probably from someone like Family Mackler. Um, I think their wines are fantastic value. Um, and they really perfectly represent what I was just talking about, where, you know, it's a really genuine, good, honest family winery. Um, so so they're a complete bargain. And then it's nice because you can kind of work your way up. You know, there's 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 all of the, the rungs on the Austria ladder. So you can work your way up, try something from, from Rhino Vess, uh, a couple of pounds more expensive, if that. Uh, and then and then go up from there. So so uh, mm. very affordable everyday white wines. Value wise, you know, Austria is hard to beat. I think. I couldn't agree more, uh, Freddie. Yeah, it's always good. a always a pleasure to uh, chat to you oh, and uh, nice to chat to you. Talk to you next time. Oh, thanks, David. It's been great to catch up. I'll speak to you soon. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Finally for this week, there's just time for one more bunch of medal winners from the IWSC, starting off with a gold medal winning bourbon from Kentucky, Bullet Frontier Whiskey, a 10-year-old bourbon, awarding it a whopping 98 points, so well into gold territory. Uh, the judges said a vibrant Earl Grey and marzipan nose with vanilla, linseed and lifted notes of gooseberry and honeysuckle. Increasingly complex palate with abundant fruit ripeness, leather undertones, cardamom and caramel roundness. Integrated warmth, well-balanced and utterly sensational. You can see how it got its uh, 98 points. Well done to uh, Bullet. Uh, next to uh, Chile and gold medal winning Carmenera, uh, Vigna Conchi Toro, Tesco finest, Carmenera 2019. Uh, this is uh, 86% uh, Carmenera, the distinctive grape of Chile, was of course wiped out by uh, Phylloxera that we were mentioning earlier with Sarah. Uh, it's uh, disappeared from Europe, but it's still uh, grown in Chile, which is famously Phylloxera free, thanks to the Andes. Um, uh, the remainder of this wine, by the way, the other 14% is Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, I was on the judging panel for this one, and here's what we said as we awarded our gold medal. A rich and meaty wine offering intense flavours of ripe black cherries, layered with savoury notes of soft leather, tobacco and elegant sweet vanilla spice. The oak is strong but well balanced, and the wine boasts a long finish. And talking of finishes, last but not least, a silver medal winning Chateauneuf du Pape, uh, Chateau Fortier Reserve 2019 Chateauneuf du Pape was described this way by the judging panel. Powerful and broad, but retains agility. It has a lovely viscosity and weighty mid-palate with a concentration of licorice and cacao supported by ripe and pleasantly grippy tannins. Sounds delicious. That's it for another edition of The Drinking Hour. Thank you to my guests, uh, Sarah Pigeon of Wins, and also to Freddie, of course. And thank you to you for listening. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram or Twitter. And I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. For now, it's goodbye. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.